this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Of the hundreds of episodes that I've done over the years, the ones that I've gotten the greatest responses to, surprisingly, have been the conversations where I was more the focus rather than a guest. And I'm, I'm very flattered that so many people have enjoyed those episodes, despite feeling that there are better people to focus on uh, other than me. So when I was asked by a former guest of the show, Jamie Rose, whether I'd be open to her interviewing me, I had to think about it. But I was quickly convinced, not only because I like and respect Jamie, but because there were a few things that I've been wanting to share with you for, for a while. So this was as good an opportunity to do so as, as any. Jamie is the co-founder of the Momenta Photographic Workshop. She has had years of experience as a photojournalist and documentary photographer, and so I knew I would be in good hands. So I gave her complete license to talk to me about anything and everything, which we did. So the result is an unusually long episode of the podcast. Now, my first thought was to cut it down to a duration more in line with a typical episode, but a few people encouraged me to release it as is, without any edits. So there you have it. I really hope that you don't see this as self-indulgent, though I'm sure a, a few people will. But regardless of that, I hope that those of you who do listen to some or all of this will find something valuable from the conversation. We'll be back to the normal format and another great guest next week. Thanks, and welcome to The Candid Frame. Abari and Perello, it is lovely to be able to talk with you today. I'm going to dive right into the questions that we have because I'm really excited to get to know you, the photographer, the writer, the creative personality that comes to all of us every week through the digital airwaves. And I'm excited to be able to ask you some questions about your background, since you always ask all of us the wonderful penetrating questions that make us think. So you moved to Los Angeles when you were three. Mm -hmm. You were born in New York City to Dominican immigrants. How do you think your family's cultural background changed and influenced your upbringing compared to some of maybe the other friends that you had in growing up? It was kind of strange. It was, the situation was when we moved to Los Angeles, we moved to South LA. So that was primarily made up of African-American community and Latinos, I think, I think largely Mexican. So I came, moved into a neighborhood I looked like I was African-American, but I spoke Spanish. So for me, it was sort of a challenge in terms of being able to identify who, who I was, right? Because people would look at me and they would make an assumption and then they would see my mother and he, who's very light-skinned and or meet my dad or, and they would hear speaking Spanish and it was just like, it just didn't register with with people and it felt like I didn't fit into being black 
completely, and they didn't feel fit into what was sort of assumed to be Latino. And it didn't help when when you would fill out forms that at the time it was like black Mexican. There was no such thing as Hispanic back then. So it was like for the longest time I would just check other. So it, it always felt like I was an other because I really had, I really was sort of confused in terms of well, what exactly am I? Because outside of my immediate family, because my aunts and and uncles and some cousins were were out here outside of that sort of small little circle there really wasn't a, a, a dominican community i was jacked in it, it wasn't like it would have been had i been in new york you know where you have a huge dominican community you just step step off the stoop and you hear the music you're eating the food you're hearing people talk in that particular accent the Dominicans have, this sort of sing-songy, really rapid talk. I, I just, I wouldn't hear that unless I was visiting my aunts or my, or my uncles. And so there was always this sort of disconnect between the life I had in my home and the life I would have on school or out in the, in the streets. So it was like sort of a built-in awkwardness that I had. So when I would visit New York, even now, and I s- visit my cousins and I'm surrounded by all these people, you know, whose accents and whose, the way they talk and the way that they, you know, just, just the way they are is so familiar to me. It's really comforting, even though I don't know all those people, because that's not something that's readily available to me, even now um, here in LA. When, did you first realize you were creative and you wanted to follow a creative path? I think, you know, as early as elementary school, I would write stories and I would draw pictures. Um, they, I remember there was this paper in the first grade that on the first top, it, was, it looked like sort of a lighter paper bag type of color. And at the top half, it would have a space where you could draw a picture. And beneath it, you would have basically areas where you could write a sentence or a story. So it would be like two solid lines and sort of a dashed line in the very center. So it would provide you the means to be able to practice your writing, you know, and trying to get the words within the lines. And I remember all the time writing stories and drawing photographs and I just kind of loved I I loved doing that I think it was in third grade I even tried to write a play but I didn't finish it and yes yeah so I think it, it sort of started then I think I was I was an avid reader I was a real bookworm so I was really captivated by stories so I really liked I really liked writing and in middle school my parents bought me a Sears typewriter and I taught myself how to type and I remember being in the kitchen and I would just grab anything like a magazine or a newspaper and I would sit there and I would just practice typing I would look at the words and I would practice just typing and I just loved the the tactile feeling of my hands hitting the keys and the words appearing on the paper. I don't think I really tried to write much in terms of stories back then. I just loved 
I just would love what it felt like to, to type. So by the time I got to high school, I was a pretty good typist, and we had typing class. And I was so... The instructor, Mr. Badakin, I remember Mr. Badakin. He was he would he would have me do all the exercises twice because <laughs> I would finish so quick and then he'd go, do it again. <laughs> you like destroyed the curve in the class. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that you learned photography when you were ten while attending the Boys Club of Hollywood. Yeah. So is this a a program? Was there a specific teacher that no that no? I mean the boys or? club. I tell people that when I was at the boys club, if it, if I hadn't discovered photography, I probably would have become a pool shark <laughs> because all I did when I went to that club was hit the billiard table, and I would play for at least four hours every day. That and foosball, but I got really good at billiards because I would just practice you know bank shots and just doing all this stuff so I was like one of the better better players in the club but then one of the counselors there a guy named Mike Cohen who was um was interested in photography he restored a dark room that was in the club on the second floor that hadn't been used in years so he cleaned it up bought the chemicals bought the paper and he had two freelance photojournalists, a man and a woman, who came to the club. And he got a bunch of his kids, maybe seven or eight of us. And they walked us through loading film into cameras. And at the time, they had a lot of old, like, German cameras. Those, those bricks with lenses and um, that had been left over from the club. Because the club, I think, had been there since the 40s or maybe even earlier. And so he taught us how to load the film, go out and make pictures, how to set the exposure, and process the film and make a print. And when I saw a print develop in that developing tray, it was like game over. So at that point, every time I would go to the club, I would ask Mike for the keys to the darkroom. And within a very short period of time, everyone else had lost interest in it. Maybe, maybe one other kid maybe had been interested in it. But after a while, I had the whole thing to myself. So I would just like load film into the camera and I would take pictures either at the club or I'd go out into the streets of Hollywood and make photographs. And it really didn't matter what I was making photographs of. What I was eager to do was get back into the, the dark room and process the film and, and make prints. And, you know, that, that for me was just uh, fascinating. I really loved being able to do that. It was the first time I think I, I, I felt that something that I created could evoke a reaction in someone else. Because I remember making prints and I would show them to the other members of the club or the counselors and people would go, oh, wow, you know, and I would get this really positive reaction to something that I was doing, which was pretty rare for me to receive. You know, because I wasn't good at athletics. I stuttered pretty badly. Um, I was very self-conscious. So for me, it was one of the few things that I could do that I got really strong affirmation for. So I think that part of just, and that combined with the sort of the magic of photography was very seductive. You have the same type of eureka moment, I think, as a lot of your guests mm -hmm. who discovered that first darkroom experience and watching white paper suddenly emerge with some sort of tonality and then the tonalities become shapes and then the shapes become the subject that you saw. Do you still have that experience 
as you photograph with digital, that, that sort of wondrous moment when you look at your pictures? Um, because I don't use film, I don't have that experience of seeing that image come from the developing, in the developing tray. But the moment of sort of discovery, that excitement comes when I observe something in the street and I recognize its potential to be something. And so there's, there's this rush of, oh, look at that light, look at that shadow, or look at that, oh, those two people are coming from different directions, and if they converge in this particular spot, it could be something interesting. So for me, it's, that's the moment when I get really excited, is when I, I realize that all these sort of disparate elements could come together for an interesting photograph. That's when my heart starts to, starts to race, and then the challenge becomes, can I wield the camera well enough in order to make the photograph. So for me, that's sort of the peak of it. And after that, it's sort of like a, a not so much a downward slope, but it's, you know, when I sit down and I look at the images on the computer and, you know, I massage them or make a print or do whatever, that's a different, there's a different pleasure to it. For me, the peak of it is just being out there and seeing, you know, what will I find and can I capture it? So for me, that's where the, 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 the rush is. That's where the real pleasure of it is, and is, in the, is going out on the hunt and seeing what I can, what I can find. Do you, going, going back to the origin story, <laughs> you, you bounced around quite a bit in the creative fields. You were a literature major. Um, mm-hmm. We have that in common. I was a lit major as oh, well. Oh, okay. Did you think that you wanted to go into more writing because you, you know, that was sort of your first passion with the typewriter and you were exploring, it seems like a lot of different creative outlets. What, what made that decision for you? How, how did you make the decision to, to go into literature? Was photography an option? I'm so half-assed in terms of making long-term plans. It's just, I was at LACC, and just by chance, I ended up joining the newspaper there, right? And that was really where I discovered that that I conceivably could do something well that might be a career, right? Writing, articles, making photographs. All I knew was that I wanted to go to Berkeley. That's all I knew. She says, I want to go to that school. Why Berkeley? Oh, I don't know. Oh, well, this is really stupid. A friend of mine was going to go up there, was going to go up to Berkeley. And so I think I, think I got that sort of seed in me. It's like, oh, that might be a good school to go to. And when I was working at the paper, I've never told anybody this, but this is really dumb. But they had a catalog of the school. And there was this picture of a really cute girl. Oh my gosh, and I was just going to say, please tell me there yes, wasn't a cute girl. There was a cute girl. There was a cute girl. <laughs> she was a Latina with brunette hair, just beautiful. And I would always look at that and I'd go, I'm going to go up there where she is. <laughs> but here's the interesting story about, about that, is that I applied to go to Berkeley. Did all the stuff. I got the essays, set all that stuff up. And I got a letter of rejection. But I said, well, I'm going to move up there anyway, because my friend was living in a house and there was space available. I said, I'll go up there and I'll just go to Oakland City College 
and I'll just keep taking classes there and get a job or something. And I'll just keep applying until I get in. So I was just said, and I didn't really, I don't think I, I think I applied to other UC schools and I can't remember whether I got accepted to them or not. I can't, neither here nor there. But I was determined to go up there. And the week before I was going to move up, I got another letter saying that I was accepted. And so I said, this is the letter I'm taking. Because if, <laughs> if they refer back to that other letter, I just, I'll just say, well, I got this one. I'm here. So you're just going to have to let me in. <laughs> so that's, that's what happened. So you were, you were working for the paper. You eventually landed, which I think a lot of your listeners probably don't know, you landed a job as a stand-up comedian no, uh, for a period of time no, after college. I wouldn't, no, no, I wouldn't even call that a job. No, that was actually before I went to Berkeley. See, what happened is, is I, was, I was working for a photographer, on the west side of town as he was a wedding photographer. So I was working as an assistant. And I met a woman named Sally Kirkland, who's an actress. She was in The Sting. You know, she was a big actress during the 70s and early 80s. And she was teaching a photographic workshop. And somehow I was still toying with the idea of being an actor because I was I had acted in high school. But I wasn't really serious about pursuing it you know it's just a sort of a, an outlet but somehow I ended up working for her because she would conduct these workshops and she and I would run the soundboard as well as manic a video camera because she would record her students in these week-long workshops and there were some of those students her her private students who were doing stand-up and so I would hang out with them and all these comics at all the clubs but specifically the Variety Arts Center in downtown Los Angeles on, on Figueroa. And I just started hanging out there and just loved hanging out with all these comics. Just those guys were just, just great to hang out with. So funny. I mean, I'd be out at three or four in the morning because the club would close at like a 12 or one. And then they'd go out to either the Atomic Cafe or Gorky's. So if anyone who knows L.A. from back in the day <laughs> will recognize those names. And they would be out there eat, you know, eating and hanging out and just busting each other up, up. And then I was, Lisa Glass was one of my friends and one of the actresses, and I was always making comments about her performance. She says, you should shut up and just go up there and do it yourself. And I was like, oh, okay. So I just started doing it, and I wasn't particularly good, but because of the, the way that the, the, way that the stand-up circuit worked at the time, it's not like now. Right. So, you know, you could go up there and if you're relatively good, they would find a spot for you. And I was there every week for about a year until one night I completely bombed. And when you bomb like that, you're supposed to immediately go up. And I didn't. So that was the end of that was the end of that. Well, you were I mean, public performing for someone who used to have a stutter was probably petrifying. Did how how did um, how did you overcome the stutter and how did you get comfortable being in front of people and putting yourself out there like that? Um, there was something about being in front as a performer that helped me 
feel less nervous. And I know that this really makes sense, but part of it was the fact that I was, I felt like I was in control to a certain degree, especially when I inhibited and uh, inhabited another persona, when I was playing a character or I was being someone other than myself, that for me was incredibly comfortable. It's, it's when I'm myself and I have nothing you know, I have no facade to hide behind that I get incredibly awkward and my stutter would show up. And so doing speech in middle school and doing those competitions and in high school being an actor and then, you know, and all those other other things, it was it was so easy because I felt like people were looking at somebody else. They weren't really looking at at me because if I was put in a situation where I was supposed to have a conversation with someone especially if it was a girl I would know what to say I just felt I just would crawl into myself but you know if I was going to inhabit someone else all that stuff sort of just just went away and I think with the stutter I just got to the point where I just taught myself to slow down because with the stutter it's just that my mind is going so fast that my mouth can't keep up and so I just learned how to just put the brakes on and do it and sometimes it still comes up you know you know when I'm doing an interview or something like that I'll I can hear it as I'm doing it and it's coming up a little more <laughs> a little now but not to the degree that I had during elementary school. By the time I got into middle school, it was, it was pretty much under control. But during those early years, it was just be like, it was, the words would just tumble out of my mouth. And it was just, and it made me just want to be that much more invisible. Interesting. So you, you graduated from school and then you went right into working for Nikon, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I graduated during a recession, and because I hadn't really, again, planned for what I was going to do after graduation, I moved back home, and there was an ad in the paper for an icon, which was down in Torrance at the time, and I just applied, and uh, I, I got the job as a technical support rep. So those, what I did there was I would be at the other end of the 1-800 number, uh, answering questions about Nikon gear going all the way back to the uh, 50s. So it's basically a a call center, but it was about photography. And what was cool about it is that I had access to every piece of Nikon gear that was available. And the best thing about it was that they encouraged us to use the equipment so that we could talk about it with customers. And they paid for the processing they gave us free film and processing. And so every week I was grab, grabbing a camera or a lens and just shooting. Now I, I think about how lucky I was to have someone else, pay, you know, have someone else sort of pay the bill, basically, for me to go out and you know, do something that I would have done anyway. But yeah, yeah, I was there for about eight years. And during that time, is that when you began your project documenting Broadway in downtown LA? Yeah, yeah, because that was, I was there and the riots happened. Do you want to tell the listeners about that a little bit? Yeah. What the riots were and how it affected LA? Well, as I said, it was down in South LA and this was during the Rodney King beatings and then they had uh, charged the uh, officers and uh, they were all found not guilty. And that resulted in uh, this citywide disruption. 
um, much like the Watts riots that had happened back in the in the sixties. And the, I remember, you know, that 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 day because I was just even though I didn't live in South LA, I was living in Gardena. You were still aware of it, and it was really disconcerting because I was seeing areas that I had grown grown up in. Because the 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 sort of the flashpoint on Florence and Normandy was probably less than five or ten minutes from my mom's house, and that that day I was really concerned for my mom because she would go to bingo, and Florence was the street that she would drive up and down to in order to get there. So I was like, and we didn't have cell phones then, so I was in a little sort of worried as to whether or not my mom was going to, you know, would find herself in the middle of all that chaos, but luckily she, she didn't. But in the ensuing days, I would drive down the street and, you know, there was the National Guard and these guys in uniforms and guns and Humvees and all these other things. Just, and it was like really strange. And then what I kept hearing was people sort of just talking about the neighborhood that I had grown up in. In really negative terms, you know, people were like really scared of, of that. And for me, I always knew about how people felt about the community for a long time, but I, f- I felt something really, something that really made me angry about the fact that people were so quick to sort of write, write off an entire community, you know, because they would look at not just the events of the riots, but the, the negative things, and they would totally disregard you know, the families, the men and women, the children who are just out there trying to live their lives and trying to improve on their lives. And I just, just dislike the fact that people were saying, well, these people are worthless. You know, that if they really, if they really are worth anything, they'd get themselves out of that situation, that they would move elsewhere. Right. And I just, it just bothered me. And Downtown Los Angeles is not like it it's now because downtown is lar- largely gentrified. But I I really had an affinity for downtown, and I just decided, well, I'm just going to go downtown and I'm just going to photograph it just to show the things that I find beautiful about that area. And I think I gravitated to that downtown just because there was more activity there than there was in my my own neighborhood. Because uh, I could go down there, I could park my car. And just walk around an area that back in the 70s had been a really important part of my life because back in those days, if you wanted to go to a movie, you would go downtown or Hollywood. So those are, you didn't have all these malls with all these multiplexes and stuff there. So, And we would also go downtown to do shopping because all the major department stores were still there. And then eventually they all sort of went away. And so it was largely a community that served Latinos and African-Americans. So it was just, it was really alive. And I would go down there and I would just load, you know, an FM2, an F3, an F4, whatever Nikon I, I wanted with a lens and just rolls and rows of Kodachrome. Because I loved National Geographic photographers who used Kodachrome. And I would just go out there and just shoot and document it just to sort of say there's beauty here you know that this community is more than just dirty and seedy and dangerous and all those other stuff and all those other things that um 
And so I just, I, I, I had no intention of really sort of doing anything with, with the work. I just felt, you know, I think part of it is that I just felt a little bit powerless in terms of being able to defend the community with words. I felt, I just didn't feel like I could, if someone was saying that, that I, I, I could adequately uh, combat them with, with that. So pictures, I, I think, was the way that I did it. Someone asked me one time uh, when I was working, <laughs> I was working on a project with a bunch of young military men. And they said, did you, did you find it difficult? You know, were, were they mean to you or whatever? I was like, no, these guys... <laughs> There's like 19 year old men at the time. I was like 20 something. I said, they really, they really liked having me around. I was the only female, you know, in a wide area in a Middle Eastern area that wasn't covered up. So I think they were just completely fascinated. <laughs> Did you think that in terms of, you know, your history and the fact that you're, you know, Dominican, you look like the people that you were photographing. Did you find that your background actually helped you in that kind of documentation? Do you feel like another photographer, say a white photographer, would have had as much access and comfort level in there? Well, most of the stuff I was doing was street shooting, so I really didn't engage with people to any degree. But I think that what helped was at the time, there weren't many photographers downtown it's not like now you know you throw a rock in the air and you hit three of them um, <laughs> really it was really rare for me to see anyone else photographing down there were people comfortable with you did they were since there weren't a lot of photographers and street photography wasn't really yeah that big I, was, of a thing? I was more of an anomaly they would just see some i guess a kid at the time wielding a camera so i i think they may have seen me and with the camera but it, it was it was easy to sort of disregard me it's not like today where you know everyone's hyper aware of the presence of a camera yeah i, I was just there making pictures and i never really thought about it i was just so I was so just intent in making the photographs that I don't think that I was sort of preoccupied with how people would react to me. But to your point about had I been someone white coming in there and making photographs, I don't know if it would have made that much of a difference because I know that there was one point where I, I saw some photographs of downtown that was made by a famous photographer. What was his name? I don't want to say it's the guy who did the ones on the motorcycle bikers back in the 60s black and white but i remember oh, and, oh he's he was down here you know making photographs yeah i think i think that at the time that in terms of photographers in a public space like that i don't think it would have been too difficult for anyone to really sort of make photographs in the way that i was making them i think that if you had if you had a determination to do it and you had a willingness to engage with people i think it would i think it would have been possible i think it's a little harder to do it now just because uh, everyone's very sensitive to the presence of the camera and how the images are used. Yeah. 25 years is a long time to document one subject. How did you keep yourself inspired and, and what, what were your goals as you were working through this project? Did I, you, did you have an end game in mind or was it just creative expression? No goals. <laughs> no goals, nothing. It was just like, I want to go out and shoot. Because all I was really doing was just working and going back to my apartment. And I lived in an apartment with some friends of mine. And I had, you know, we had played D&D &D together, Dungeons and Dragons, 
you know, in high school and a couple of years. And after I came back from college, I really was not that interested in continuing to play. I would try to play, but I just wasn't as invested in it. And also just the, the dynamic of living in the same apartment with some of my other friends. I, I became very conscious of my privacy, you know, because it was it was one of those apartments where all the apartment all the apartments face into a courtyard, so everybody knows everybody's business. And I wish I had <laughs> I wish I hadn't moved into that place, um, <laughs> just because it it just it just didn't feel very comfortable. And so I started sort of pulling further and further back. And I wasn't a social butterfly of any sort, so I didn't have people that I was hanging out with outside of them. I would go to work and then I'd come home. And so for me, going out and shooting was probably the only social life that I I really had was just going out and making photographs because I didn't, I wasn't, I never was much of a dater. Is there, is there any photograph from that series that particularly comes to mind as like, you know, a seminal moment or your favorite moment from yeah from that 25 years yeah and I'm, I'm going through the I'm going through the film right now I've sorted through all the Kodachromes and I've got down to about 96 and, and these are images that I have not seen in 20 25 years because you know with Kodachrome you look at it on a slide tray and otherwise it's in a box so I'm revisiting all those and I'm I'm supposed to scan that stuff <laughs> But there's one image that I think was really a, a key moment for me because I'd been going there re- for one year. I think I was going practically every weekend, if not every other weekend, to shoot. And then after that, it became sort of an intermittent thing. But I remember one day, and I think this was after after I got married, and I was thinking, oh, I should go downtown and shoot. And I said, I really don't want to. And I said, like, ah, just go anyway. And I parked my car, and I'm walking towards Broadway. And there's a guy, shirtless, young shirtless guy with, you know, six pack, maybe even eight pack on a horse riding his horse down Broadway. And I'm like, <laughs> what? what the hell? And they were filming a video. And I forget who the singer was. It may have, it may have even been Aaliyah. I, I really can't remember. But I saw the scene and I made the photograph. And I was like, if I had decided not to come, I never would have made that they've made that shot and for me that was i always remember that on 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 days where i really don't want to get out and go shoot right because that was just it's it was just the strangest thing to see especially on that street right for me it's a perfect example of why it's so important to get out even though you may not be in the mood because you just never know what's 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 out there and that's pretty over you know that's a pretty dramatic but but sometimes the discoveries are really subtle things real quiet things and i derive just as much joy from those things today as i did from from that moment that's incredible so during this time you transitioned from nikon to editing Mm -hmm. so how how did you make the how did you make the switch? What what drew you to this? Because it was a very, you know, going from Nikon to Outdoor Photographer Magazine. Like, that's a that's a totally different world. Yeah. I, part of it was I had grown frustrated where, with what was, with what my career path was at Nikon. 
because I had been there and there were guys who had been doing the same job that I was doing for eight, 10 years, maybe longer. And I remember coming into that job and hearing guys had been there eight or nine years already. And I was like, how can someone be at the same job for that long? <laughs> eight years later, later, I found out, you know, just one day at a time. But towards the tail end of it, I was, I really wanted something more. And I had interviewed for a sales position, but the guy who was in charge of sales, he didn't think I was capable of being able to, to do it. And, they, and that was really sort of the only place that I could go within the company. But towards the tail end of it, uh, another I almost, I almost got the sales position. But at that same time, I had applied for this job as an associate editor at Outdoor Photographer in and digital uh, digital photo magazine, or something like that. At, at the same time, I was ready to leave, and they were going to offer me the sales position there at Nikon, and I just went, no, thank you, because <laughs> I was just ready to go. And at that, at that point, I really wanted to return to writing on a regular basis and making photographs, and I felt that the magazine provided me uh, a place where I could return to that. Because I really wasn't a salesman. I just wanted to do something else other than just sit there in that cubicle answering questions all day. So I left and joined the, the magazine. And um, yeah, I was there for a while. And again, I had just access to all the equipment. Now, now it just wasn't Nikon. It was Canon. It was Olympus. It was Pentax. They were just transitioning to digital, but we're still playing with uh, film, so I can shoot film, I could shoot digital. It was just like, again, you know, I had a playground where I could go and do something that I really enjoyed and get paid for it, and also just like learn all the facets of photography, especially during that important transition between film and, and digital. How did the media landscape and the interaction with the photographers change? I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot now where people are teaching themselves video and they're trying to learn, you know, motion graphics and all of these things that seem very, you know, overwhelming, especially to some old dogs learning new tricks, if you will. Um, I, I remember back in the days of the dinosaurs when we made this transition from film to mm -hmm. digital, it was a really scary kind of frustrating experience for some people who had been shooting film for 30 years and they were yeah. saying the quality wasn't there. How did you guys deal with that? As you know, the editors working with the photographers, did you find new talent coming in or was it hard to like train people? You know, not, not, not really. I think that at, in terms of that transition, I think I, I was more sensitive to when I was at Nikon. Because I remember when I saw the first digital camera, which was a Kodak camera. Um, <laughs> yes. It was a Kodak camera that had, I think it was a Nikon D8 N8008 or I think it was an 8008, and it had this brick attached to it. And me and Michael Pliskin, who was my coworker, we went to Sammy's, because he used to work at Sammy's, and we went to take a look at it. And I remember being incredibly disappointed, because uh, you would look through the viewfinder, and you weren't getting a full view of the screen. It was just this little postage stamp image that you would see through the viewfinder, surrounded by black. But we looked at it, and it was like, well, this is the this is the future. So when I was working at Nikon, I think the, the first part of my career there was just dealing with the film 
but I got the position to do tech support for the digital line, which was largely supporting the, the scanners and eventually the, the initial digital cameras, because right before I left, they introduced the D1, which was Nikon's first real digital camera. And they had a precursor to that. But I, I was in the midst of seeing how people were using scanners, you know, to take their negative film or their slides to scan them and share the, you know, share the images. So I, I, I was seeing that transition there, but I really wasn't sort of privy to what was really what was happening in the sort of the professional world and, and understanding how disruptive it was sort of being for a lot of people. Because I was primarily trying to teach those people over the phone, mind you, how to <laughs> use this stuff. Because one of the things that I had to do, especially with the scanners, they had to install SCSI cards. They had to in actually install a component into the computer to serve as the interface between that and their scanners. And they would obviously, not everybody here was, who was calling was computer savvy. And I had to walk people through over the phone who were having trouble because if it wasn't the card not being seated properly in the card slot, it was some sort of conflict with another piece of hardware or software. Now that I think about it, it's just crazy that I was doing that all over the phone, but I got pretty good at being able to do that. But by the time I got to the, to the magazine, I think the transition was slowly sort of being embraced, especially with in terms of inkjet printing, you know, increasing resolutions and cameras. And, you know, magazines, they're really marketing devices for selling a dream and selling equipment, right? So that's any magazine. That's exactly what it is. You know, it's aspirational and magazines sort of tap into the aspiration that people have to be young and beautiful or to be photographers or, you know, to be these wonderful athletes. And then all the merchandise that's attached to it is seen in advertising or somehow sort of infused into the content that people are writing. So, so for me, that, that was sort of part of the world, but it was being privy to sort of cutting edge technology as it kept evolving. So for me, that was really sort of the fun part. It was like, oh, new camera's in. And I couldn't wait to get my, you know, eager hands on whatever it was. I didn't care who it was from, whether it was Pentex or Olympus or Nikon. It's like, I want to play with a new toy. I want to see what it's capable of. So that was, that was sort of my limited, almost myopic view of the technology. I wasn't really seeing how how it was changing the editorial or the commercial world. So during this time, did they, what were you doing? Were you shooting? Were you writing? Were I was you doing editing? a lot of writing. So we would do like reviews of different products that would come in. I'd be assigned to write a review on a printer or a camera or a lens. Uh, I would edit other uh, photographers who were contributing articles to the magazine, like I, Rick Salmon, who you may or may not be familiar with. I was, you know, Rick would send in his regular article and I was the one who would go through it and copy read it and changes or send him notes. Um, I would do profiles on photographers. I would interview them and I would do basically uh, uh, profiles on them. That was a lot of what I was doing. And so a lot of my photography was still my photography, but it was tied to evaluating a particular product or a piece of software. So that was the nice thing about it because I could shoot whatever I wanted to shoot. So it was, it was licensed to go out and make photographs, which is, was really sort of 
the thing that I really loved about it. And I would just sit down there and I would just like, you know, punch out these articles week after week after week. And it just, it really kind of served me creatively, both as a photographer and um, as a writer. So what prompted the start of The Candid Frame? I was living in Pasadena and the offices for the magazine was near Westwood, which is about 30 miles. So at the time, it took me an hour to get to work and about an hour and a half to get home. So, and there's no, no good way of bridging that distance. So that's like each day was two and a half hours on freeway in the midst of traffic. And sometimes it would take longer. So I was trying to find just diversions to keep myself occupied during those long trips. And I hated terrestrial radio with all its commercials and stuff like that. So I started listening to books on tape. And I think for a long, for the long time, I was just listening to go to the library and just get books on tape. And then somehow, I don't know where or how, I heard about this thing called podcasting. And this was in the days where you didn't have iTunes. You know, you didn't have that to be able to search for them. There were, you had to, you had to find out about it. And then you had to sort of find a piece of software that you would download the content to your computer you would just get the R you'd have to get the RSS feed for whatever show it was. And then you download it to your computer and then you'd be able to sync it like music to your iPod. So that's what I, I had to do. So I would just, I didn't care what the content was. It was just like, well, let me just download it and just listen to it. And you know, I would listen to And, and back then it was like the, really the wild, wild west. So there was no, there was no structure to it. It's just anybody with a mic and recorder and the means by which to, you know, to create an RSS feed with just, you know, great content, you know, and some of the stuff was really wacky and really just strange, <laughs> but it was like, it was so different from anything else that I was like listening to. And there were a few photo podcasts. There was Martin Bailey's photography podcast out of Japan. There was Chris Marquardt's tips from the top floor out of Germany. There was Jeff Curto's uh, history of photography a podcast out of uh, Illinois, somewhere near Chicago. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, all these people are doing photo stuff, but someone should do a show where they talk to photographers about photography. Because um, both Chris and Martin were, were talking more about the process, you know, about how to, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't really interviewing photographers. And I felt like, well, I know all these photographers because I work with them all the time. And I'd gotten pretty adapted to being able to interview people for the purpose of writing an article about them. So my friend Marco Torres lent me his digital recorder. And do you remember what model it was? Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember what it was. It may have been, may have been an Olympus something or other. It was, really, it was really a simple, simple thing. And I sort of figured out, okay, oh, I have to create a blog. So I used Blogger to create a blog. And then I figured out, okay, this is how I upload files and, and you know, all the mechanics of doing it. And John Isaac, who was, uh, I think at the time, still working for the United Nations, he was in town to speak at Art Center College of Design. I said, hey, John, I hear you're in town. I'd like to interview you for this thing that I'm doing. And he said, sure. And I met him at 
uh, I think the Hyatt Hotel in Pasadena, either that or the Hilton. And I did my first interview in the dining room while he was eating dinner. So if you hear that first episode, you'll hear the clicking and clacking of <laughs> utensils in the background. And that was the first interview. And then I uploaded it and uh, that's all she wrote. I just started doing it from there. So I was like asking people who've done really successful projects. I mean, this is a 12 year long endeavor of your life. What's the biggest mistake <gasps> that you made that you wish you could correct in the history of the candid frame? Oh my God. That's a gotcha question. Man, there's so now many. Now you know how it feels. This is oh. how the rest of us feel when you ask us these really hard, wonderful questions. God, there's so <laughs> many mistakes I've made. It's just, is there a standout? The more embarrassing mistakes have been when I made some sort of technical mistake and I had to ask the guest to interview again because either it didn't record or the thing was distorted and it was just like, oh, crap. And oftentimes it was because of some stupid thing. And, you know, I've had, I had one guest. I had, I had to interview her three times. And it was just like, oh, God, not again. But thank God she was gracious enough to be able to do, be able to do it. But I, I think most of the mistakes have to do... Well, here's... Okay. Those are the ones that sort of, like, sting a little bit. You know, when I make something like that and I feel like, God, I'm so stupid, yeah, you know. But I think the, 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 the mistake that sort of hangs over me is the fact that I didn't leverage the show and the brand in the way that other people did earlier. You know, because as I mentioned, Chris Marquardt and Martin Bailey in particular started just about a year before I did. And um, Martin... I think purposely at some point left his job and started teaching workshops. And I think Chris lost his job where he was working and they saw that sort of as an opportunity for them to sort of make a leap and try to do something with the audience that they were building and create something to the point that, you know, they they have really uh, successful, not only successful shows, but ancillary things that they've built from that, from selling prints to teaching workshops and traveling and, you know, and build a real community around themselves, which is, you know, amazing. And it's only in recent years that I thought like, oh, I, I need to figure out how to do that for myself. And so that's, and we talked a little bit about this in Miami. It's just this the whole idea that, you know, I, it wasn't an obvious thing for me how to do that. So if anything that's been like, if anything I felt like is a mistake, it's the fact that I wasn't able to figure that out earlier and that it's still not completely clear to me how to, how to get there. You have a incredible following of people who just love this show mm -hmm. and you're able to find such diversity in your guests What's the key to a good interview? What's what draws you to a particular photographer that you'd like to to discuss, you know, their craft with them? Um, How do you go about finding your guests? Yeah. Well, I, I, well before I answer that, um, your point about diversity was something that was really important for me when I started the show. Uh, 
because one of the things that I kind of observed, not only at the magazines that I was working at, but all the other magazines that, that I looked, it seems like it always gravitated to the usual suspects, you know, because sometimes it's just, especially with me, it was just like, didn't we just do an article on that guy? You know, it's just, it just, there was just a certain a small group of photographers who are always sort of being profiled. And I, and I was especially sort of sensitive being a person of color in the fact that I wasn't seeing much in the area of people of color, women, people outside of the U.S. and Europe being profiled in in the work. So when I started the show, one of my one of my goals was, yes, I want to talk to people who I've always admired and whose work I've always loved, who just so happened to be, you know, white and male. But it's like, I don't want my show to reflect what I'm seeing in, in the magazines. I felt like I want to, I want to have the ability to be able to showcase the work of people who otherwise would never end up in a photo magazine, but are producing really interesting and engaging work. So uh, part of my selection was driven by I want to talk to this person just because I love their work just because I've been living with their work forever you know so when I get to interview Joe Meyerowitz or Murray Ellen Mark or Elliot Erwett or Eli Reed it's just like you know I, I remember being in my room in college going through their books over and over and over and over again training myself to see you know so I really wanted to talk to those people but other times I'm I just see somebody who has an interesting story or has images that just, I just go, uh, wow, this person is creating this amazing, amazing work. I have to talk to them. And that's really, that's really the, the biggest thing. My list of potential guests is so long that I have to really be good about going, <laughs> going really way back. Because some people who I've interviewed on the show were out, would be would have been on could have been on my list four or five years ago, right? So I have to be really purposeful about going back when I'm considering people and thinking, oh wait, let me see who else who who because part of, part of what drives a lot of interviews is because someone has a new book out or has an exhibit out, and you know, and and so that's sort of. A, that's sort of a smart way of sort of being able to land a guest if people out there are podcasters is that, you know, that usually gives you a good excuse to it, uh, to, to interview someone and gives you access to them fairly readily, especially if they're a big name. But for me, I wasn't always, I didn't always use that as the catalyst as to get people on the show. It might bring me, it might, it might, it might, it might bring them to my attention, but I wouldn't necessarily immediately say oh, I have to interview them, but they would get on the on the list. So sometimes I would talk to people about work that I found particularly impactful two or three years after they may have been initially promoting them. I don't I don't mind that because for me it's not so much about being timely with it as more discussion about what leads to the work in the first place. That for me is a much more interesting conversation and it helps take the conversation away from people having people having to pimp the book or the project. Because when you're when you're in that mode, that's really what you're you're there to talk about. I'm here to talk about the book. And if I have a certain distance of time between the release of whatever it is and the conversation, I have I have a little more control over 
how the conversation sort of flows. What do you think is the key to a good interview rapport? Do you do a lot of background? Yeah, research and listening. That's it. That's because I will, I will, you know, I will sit down and I will listen, watch, and read as much about that person before leading up into the interview. And then I start the interview and I just shut up and listen. And that's it. There's no secret to it at all. For me, because I don't work from a list of questions. I may have a couple of words on a piece of paper, but most times I don't even have that. Uh, and once, and, and for me, it's always the first question. I always have an idea what my first question will be. And from then, it, I just let the conversation sort of roll naturally. And as I'm listening to the people, they'll say something and that will trigger the next question, which is largely going to be informed by the research that I've done. I may not be able to leverage all the research that I've done, but I don't want to go in with an agenda because I, I, I want it to, I want there to be sort of a give and take between me and the person that I'm photographing, I'm not photographing, interviewing, because I want them to contribute something beyond simply answering questions. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think, my, I think that shows in, in your interviewing style and the, the questions that you ask and the, the level of comfort that comes from your guests. I mean, i I really felt like when, when we had our interview, mm -hmm. it was a conversation. I didn't feel like I was being interviewed. I felt like we had a really great talk. And when I listened to your other episodes, I feel like I, I've kind of been invited in to silently sit at a bar with you oh, and William Mallard just hanging out and having a talk or you and Joanna Toro or someone like that. Mm -hmm. And it feels very natural. You have a great style, which I think is what sets the candid frame apart from a lot of other podcasts in this environment. So, and it's very reassuring as a listener to know that there's just tons more to come because I uh. think it would be, <laughs> it would be so disappointing if this, if this particular outlet went away, cause it's so insightful. Oh, I appreciate that. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about something that I think you know, some of your listeners might not know is you've written six books mm -hmm. on photography. What prompted you to transition your writing to a longer form? What, what motivated you to create the first book? I always wanted to write a book. I always wanted to have a book on the shelf. I was a bookworm. I would spend in elementary school. I would make a beeline to the library and I'd grab all the books. And I remember when my first library card arrived. I remember the day that it arrived in the mail with my name printed on it, on this very sort of flimsy piece of paper with this almost pale blue ink in Los Angeles Public Library, and putting it in my wallet that my grandmother had given me, and me like going, he was like, oh, you know. But uh, I remember going to the stacks in the adult section and, and finding the space where if I wrote a book, my book would be. And I remember my fingers going along the spine of the books and finding like Perez between whatever was there and going, oh, I'd be right here. So I was always just like, just, just something that always sort of captured my imagination, the idea that I could have a book on a shelf one day. After I left the magazine, I was just like, 
well, what am I waiting for? I should just, you know, write a book. And so I just researched, well, what do you need to do to write a photo book? And so I, I wrote a proposal letter. I chose Peach Pit Press, which published my first book, largely because um, I was really, because we, at the magazine, we always saw books coming in for review at the magazine. So I really liked the, 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 the quality of the publications that, that they made. And so I just went onto their website, saw what the criteria was, and spent like two weeks drafting a sample chapter, the proposal, doing all that stuff, and sending it out. It was months before I eventually heard back. They liked the idea, and we went back and forth in terms of making the deal, and then I signed the contract, and then I was in complete terror. <laughs> and I was procrastinated for a couple of months, I think, before I actually started writing. And then the only way I sort of psyched myself out is like, well, what if I look at each chapter as just another magazine article? And that was it. It's like, oh, I, I write magazine articles all the time. So if I don't look at, quote unquote, writing a book, if I just look at, oh, I'm just writing a magazine article, I was finally able to get the momentum to write Chasing the Light, which is the, 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 the first book that I wrote. And you've, <clears throat> you've done six. Mm-hmm. You just finished one. Do you think you're going to write another? Yeah. I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to write it on. But this last book, I think, was the most pleasurable writing experience I've ever had because I hadn't written something in two years because I'd done done some other books largely for hire. You know, they said, do you want to write about this? And I did it largely for the paycheck. And I really didn't enjoy it. It was really a struggle to do it. And I said, I never want to do that again. I said, if I'm ever going to dedicate that much much time to writing a book, it's going to be a book that I want to write. And so making photography was really about what I was, what I've been teaching my students in my workshops, I just felt like that th- makes sense that I can translate that into a book, and that I'll be able to reach a lot more people. Yeah, I had a really, I had really a lot of fun writing it, um, especially when I made the choice to lead each chapter with an image and to tell the story behind it, because then that would get that just I was like I would see the picture. And then I would just start pounding on the on the keyboard because I felt like I was telling a story that was telling a narrative rather than jumping into okay how do I explain explain depth of field, which you know describing the technical stuff for me is just like is a real sort of struggle at least starting an article or a chapter based on that alone, but just jumping into oh let me tell you a story that was great because I was just jump into that and that would give me the momentum that I needed to be able to move through the chapter and finish it and then move on to the next one. So I like the experience of writing the book in that way and um, yeah, I hope that people who read it um, benefit not only from the information that I provide from them, but just the way that I wrote it because I think it's the best written book that I've done. You mentioned uh, teaching workshops. I'm You've, you've been teaching all over the world. How did you come to come into teaching? What inspired you to want to be face-to-face with, with your audience this time? You know, I like helping people. I like to help people discover the way they see. I mean, there's just nothing more gratifying to, to teaching someone how they themselves are observing the world and 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 instill in them a sense of confidence that 
that the way that they observe the world and consequently how they photograph it is valuable and that they don't have to adhere to just mirroring someone else's style or technique. That for me is, was, is, uh, has always been the gift that photography provided me. You know, the fact that I see the world in a particular way, that I photograph it in a particular way, and that there's an appreciation and that there's a value to that. And I like the fact that I can give that back to people when I teach. Because when they have those breakthrough moments, when they make photographs that they never would have made before they studied with me, and I'm able to point out this is what you're doing right. This is what you have to do more of. And just and give them sort of a, a, a path of how they can get there, which is really just simple. It's just like shoot a hell of a lot, right? But, doing, but do it with a, a conscious purposefulness that's often lacking. Because I, I feel like so much of photo education is one, geared to selling you more crap. And two, is just... You know, it's just enough information for you to toy with, but but that you never really know how to personalize it. You know, you may learn how to do this thing with Photoshop, or you may learn how to do an HDR, but you know, all you're learning is sort of the mechanics of it, and it's not tied into your personal vision of how you see the world or the things that you think are important. And I felt like I don't want to contribute to all that noise. So when I teach, it's like, and, and, when I, and I do that, but it also reminds me of how I need, what I need to do in order to be a, a good and a better photographer. Because every time I'm looking at other people's pictures, and even when I'm doing it on, on my YouTube channel where I critique images, I'm learning as much as anyone who watches those things. Because it's like I'm having to think about it. And when I go out and shoot, it's just like, okay, I got to remember that thing that I talked about or that I, I discovered by looking at someone else's work. You know, that for me is, is, it's a pretty selfish reason that I'm doing it. But that keeps me very energized and keeps me eager to want to do it. But when I see, you know, former students and I see some of the work that they do afterward, not, th not that I'm claiming a responsibility for it, but to know that in small, some small way I sort of contributed, it, contributed to opening the door just a little, little bit, and they make a photograph that's just amazing. One of my st former students posted an image that she made in Cuba that was just freaking phenomenal. I looked at that, and it was like, it was perfect. I mean, every and, and the smallest little details of that shot were just like it was just just beautiful, and it's just like oh, awesome, great that someone else is creating pictures that I aspire to make, even though I've been shooting longer than she was. It's just like I love seeing that because I go, just makes me want to up my game all the all the more. You teach workshops. Mm -hmm. You write books. Mm -hmm. You run an incredibly successful podcast what do you do to take time for you? How do you manage work-life balance? Uh -huh. <laughs> There's no balance. There's no balance. If it weren't for my wife, I think I wouldn't have a social life at all. You know, she's a social butterfly. You know, when people see me traveling, you know, it's my wife. 
my wife loves traveling. She's like, okay, where are we going to go? I mean, we haven't even arrived. We haven't even come back from our last trip. And she's always talking about, okay, where are we going to go next? And that's something I never would have done on my own. You know, I always had some excuse where oh, I don't have the money or I don't know anybody, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so she, she's been a, a really good influence in terms of me engaging with people outside of work because I think otherwise I would just be a, a workaholic. You know, I think that's all. That's all I would. I would. That's all I would really do, because I. I wasn't the guy who would go out to the club, right, and get my drink on, you know, and start dancing, and you know, I just, it just wasn't. For me, I was just much more comfortable just staying home with a book or going out and making photographs. Here, currently, what social life I do have mostly revolves about her and our friends. We had dinner last night with some friends, and it's like that's really nice. That's, those are the moments I really take a great pleasure in. Like when we were in Miami, when we were sitting down having dinner, that, that for me is, is the best. It's not so much the activity as it is the opportunity to just be able to sit down and enjoy somebody else's company over a good food and a glass of wine. And the other thing, which I've, I've tried not to talk about too much, is that I've been playing senior softball for the last two years. So 50 and up. So I, that qualifies me. I may not be, quote unquote, a senior yet. <laughs> But I qualify for that league, and that for me is like, oh, so much fun. Every Monday, every Monday morning, 8 o'clock, I'm out in the field practicing. And I can't say enough about the joy that I, uh, I derive from playing softball, even though I suck. <laughs> and it's a really good thing and it's been the, the greatest the greatest one of the greatest life lessons I've ever had is taking on something that I'm not good at and being persistent at it anyway and seeing myself improve and then backslide and then improve and backslide and not be so hard on myself because one of the things you can't do in softball especially in any team sport is that you can't fixate on your errors because while you're fixated on your errors the ball is going to come next is going to be coming at you in the very next instant so you have to sort of shake it off and put it aside immediately and when i was first playing when i would make an error i would just be like god you know i would just be and then the ball would come back come at me and i I wouldn't be ready and it was just like i can't keep doing that but I realize that that's sort of a philosophy I need to apply to all of my life. It's like it's inevitable that I'm going to make an error, that I'm going to make a mistake, that it may be embarrassing, humiliating, whatever it is. Shake it off because something else is going to come uh, in the next moment. And if you're just in the, on, on the pity pot, you're not going to be ready. So that has, that has helped to sort of shape how I look at everything else. You mentioned not being hard on yourself and you are at a point in your life where, you know, I think a lot of photographers get where they're examining their career. You've had an incredibly diverse career. You've been an actor, a stand-up comic, a college newspaper reporter and photographer. You've worked at Nikon and magazines, a podcaster, and you, you have an incredible ability to really dive into a subject and examine it and learn it, you know, from the typewriter all the way to podcasting and even softball. And you've recently learned something about yourself and how, how you approach and how your brain approaches subjects. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. 
I've been thinking about talking about this for a while, and I've in, in past uh, conversations that I've had on the on on the show that have revolved more about me. I've, I've talked about dealing with anxiety and depression, but in recent years, I developed a practice of meditation, regular exercise, doing all these things to sort of d- deal with all those things. But then I would still have moments where I would just feel these incredible intense moments of anxiety and they would come up not because of anything any circumstances in my life it was just in the middle of the day my heart would just start racing and I was just I was just it was really difficult to sort of deal with it I was kind of like well I'm doing all these things that I read that I should do in order to sort of temper it so I said well maybe I need to you know get some professional help so I, I arranged to see a counselor started explaining her to her what was going on and then she went through a series of questions and then she says well it looks you know I think that you may have ADHD and I was like I've heard of it but I always associated with that with that kid you know who can't sit still who's always just sort of jumping around and that that that, that wasn't me but as I read more about it and researched more about it I really kind of discovered that uh, yeah that's that is me I st- I'm still trying to completely grasp exactly how you know what it is and how it manifests itself in me but you know it 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 helped me to understand that my inability sometimes to do what i considered really simple things or what other people are able to do so easily had an explanation it was an incredible relief because before then i would see my inability be to be able to say plan something and organize something and do an outline do to do things like that and and struggle with that as uh, a, a reflection of me being flawed or defective that something was just wrong with me that i'm stupid that i'm just whatever it was and because i'd carried that all my life it just sort of had accumulated to the point that i just had a really negative self-image of myself especially you know, each time I would face a situation where I wasn't able to do these simple things, it would just, I would just beat myself up. You know, like, like if I made a mistake on, on the podcast, you know, I would forget, oh, I, you know, I didn't put down the date that I had that interview set for, you know, or I made a mistake in terms of this, whatever it was, I would just berate myself. And then when I got this diagnosis, all of a sudden everything started making sense. It made certain things in terms of how I was able to do certain things really well, like how I, as a photographer, I, I'm able to observe really small details that most people are completely oblivious to and how they, they seem so obvious to me. Oh, you know, but the things that I'm really interested in or that really sort of drive me, I have no problem in terms of just like going in and going in really deep with them. But, you know, you ask me to do a spreadsheet, and you ask me to do numbers, and I get to a point where I sort of really hit a wall, and it seems like someone turns the volume on a stereo all the way to 11, and the noise gets so disruptive in my head that I can't even go to step one, step two, step three. You know, there's certain things where I, I feel some resistance on and my mind just becomes a jumble and it makes it very difficult to be able to, uh, even if, if, if directions are in front of me in terms of doing it, it's really hard for me to be able to follow them without being pulled by some distraction, 
right? Because that's part of what ADHD is about, is about susceptibility to distraction, especially with things that aren't really interested in, right? <laughs> I think that's the way I'm kind of understanding it. So, but once I, under, once I got the diagnosis, I, the diagnosis, I was able to take almost like a, a uh, take a step back and see, uh, oh, this is what's happening. So now when those moments come up, I'm not so self-abusive, right? I'm a lot kinder to myself as, as a result. And I'm able to see it and go, oh, okay. Because there's some days with all the things that I have to do, um, there's some days I just knock everything off my to-do list. But on many days, I can find myself really struggling with getting things done. Like for the show, every time I, re- I have to write my introductions and the last frames, it, it can be really torturous sometimes to do, to do those things. And once they're recorded and they're out, it's like, it's fine. But almost every time I have to sit down there and write or you know, whatever else it is, sometimes it really, I really, it, it, it's tough. It's, it doesn't just, it just, I don't just get on there and just start, just start doing it. Right. And so the, the things that I have to do in order to get myself into the groove of it. Like one of the things I talked to you about in when we were in Miami was how I tend to like to improvise. Did we talk about that? We did. Yeah. <clears throat> a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this, this idea is like you put me, you put me in a scene where I have to improvise. I'm, 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 I'm good. Cause I'll, I'll be able to just like come off things in the fly. The, the interviews are, are exactly that. I don't, that's why I don't work from a list of questions because I tried working from a list of questions and then I got fixated on the questions and I stopped listening and it just didn't work. And I said, I can't do that. So that, that tendency just, just want to improvise for me works so much better than having to sit down there and have to sort of break everything down. I really struggle with trying to put the pieces together, which is one of the reasons, as I talked about earlier, why I have had some difficulty in terms of leveraging the brand and the show into something much bigger. And so as, even as I'm doing it now, it's like I have a whole bunch of different ideas in terms of how to do that. And then focusing on the one thing and trying to sort of make it happen and not go, oh, there's this other idea. It's like, it's squirrel, <laughs> right? <laughs> squirrel, squirrel. Well, my mom's a, um, my mom's a clinical psychologist. Oh, okay. And, and um, my business partner and husband's mother is a... Uh, counselor as well and one of the things that we discussed one time was that photographers are trained to be ADHD mm-hmm. like when you become a photographer people tell you you know watch the corners watch your frame yeah. look at what's coming into the frame what's coming out of the frame you know you're not just always focusing on one subject and even if you know even if you weren't ADHD before you walked in the door you might be when you walk out <laughs> yeah. But I think one of the things I found really interesting about your discussion that we had in in, at the Miami Street Photography Festival afterwards, not during the festival, um, was you had said that you you had come up with a routine for yourself. And I think a lot of photographers in general have a difficulty finding a routine for some of the things that they don't want to do, which is mm. why so many photographers are bad business people, yeah. <laughs> you know? So invoicing, 
responding to the emails, you know, following up on overdue payments, things like that are, are a real struggle. So could you talk a little bit about some of the ways that you've come up with a schedule for yourself and you've, you found some sort of, you know, ways to create patterns yeah, for success? That's something that's sort of evolving because I have a, I use Todoist, which basically is a sort of a organizational to-do list sort of thing. And so I, 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 I write, I have to write everything down that I need to take care of that day. So it begins with my, you know, my meditation, my reading and my writing in the morning, walking the dog, um, responding to emails, doing whatever I need to do for the show, grocery shopping, picking up the flea meds for my dog. (laughs) Everything has to be written down because if I don't write it down, I'll forget about it, you know, and then it will be just like, oh God, I had to do that you know so for me that that is every morning i have that list of things and i can see that okay these are all the things that i need to accomplish during the course of the day but i make that that the the self-care in the mornings the priority or at least i try to you know walk out of the house into the office in the back until alexa to turn on some meditation music in five or ten minutes, I meditate. I have some books that I read, do my writing, and go walk the dog. Until recently, I was going to the gym every morning around 5.30, but uh, I sort of slipped from doing that, but I need to get back into that because that's really, um, the, the physical exercise is really beneficial, not only physically, but in terms of ADHD, in terms of getting your adrenaline up and getting the endorphins firing. Um but I find that th- th- getting into the routine of immediately just doing those things that I need to do helps me to sort of sort of tackle all the things that I, I need to take care of, whether it's like getting ready for the interview, doing the research, recording the intros, writing a magazine article, whatever it is, having something that I can really sort of look there. And, and there's something about, you know, checking each thing off. And But um, as effective as it's been, i I'm a terrible taskmaster towards myself, so I, I have way too much on those lists. And I and I think and I've just been observing myself. I think I'm done by about two o'clock, but I've been pushing myself to six to try and get all of these things done. Right. So if I'm, if I'm starting my day at five thirty, I'm going all the way till five or six. You know, and just that's completely unreasonable. That's why I'm the worst boss I've ever had. So I need to I need to sort of figure figure a way to sort of take care of the things that I need to and having that sort of hard stop probably around two o'clock and and being okay with the fact well certain things may not get done that day and I'll just have to you know shift them over to the next day because I'm really trying not to work on Sunday and it's really hard not to but I realize that on days when I don't have to do anything except sit on the couch and read the newspaper and and just like just chill, it's like oh, this is really nice. <laughs> but I, I I don't give myself that often enough, just because I feel like, um, I think part of it is that I feel like I'm so far be- behind where I would w- like to be that I have to. But yeah, yesterday I, I when we went to dinner with our friends and we were just enjoying each other's company, I was just like, I got a good life right now. I may not be exactly where I want to be financially. 
And because that's really sort of the big, uh, the, one of the big pressures that I have now, because as a result of, you know, making the choices that I have, my income, especially in recent years, has taken quite a dip. And it's like I'm 52, turning on 53, it's like, I can't keep doing this forever. But I really want to do the show for as long as I possibly can. So it's like, okay, i got to figure out some way of being able to do this. Because a couple of times I've talked to my wife and I said, maybe I should go and go back to getting a full-time job. And she says, no, just stick the way you're doing. We're okay. But inside, part of me feels like, mm, I, you know, I, maybe I shouldn't put off doing this too long because i gotta, gotta, got to earn some real money, you know, because I'm not going to be 23 forever. <laughs> well, I, th- I think this is an incredibly brave admission on your part. I, I know, you know, obviously from my mother and from personal experiences in the last year, someone who's very close with Momenta, we, we haven't worked with them in a year, but during this last year has gone through a serious mental health crisis. And it's been a, it's been a huge learning experience for me on how certain people can be struggling and you would never know it. You might not even, you know, they might not have a diagnosis or they might not, even once it's come to light, want to talk about it, want to tell people there's so much stigma around it. And for you taking this chance and, you know, telling all of your listeners in the world that, you know, this is happening to me and I've accepted it and I'm learning from it and I'm learning about me is such an incredibly brave admission. And I, I really am impressed with you and thank you for, for sharing this. Some other people, you know, a lot of photographers, war photographers, or even humanitarian photographers can be struggling with certain PTSD. You know, there's a lot of 80% of the, you know, American population supposedly are struggling with some kind of mental mental health issue at, at one point in their lives or another. What what advice would you give to photographers who might be reticent to talk about it or find help? Um, find somebody to talk to. Part of the reason why I, I, I think I suffered for as long as I did was that I didn't feel it was okay to talk to someone else about being vulnerable. My household was not a place where you could talk about such feelings. And that informed how I was in adulthood with friends, with coworkers, in my relationships. So the idea of saying that I'm scared, I don't understand this, I feel like there's something wrong, was something that I always sort of kept secret. There's a, there's a phrase that says, you're, you're as sick as your secrets. And I was pretty damn sick, you know? Because there was so much that was going on in me and I felt like I can't talk to anybody about it. You know, because I wanted to keep up that facade in terms of, oh, I'm okay. I have, I have a perfect example of this. I was a kid, I don't know how old I was. We were at the beach. I got caught up in a riptide and I was pulled out further and further. And I was swimming, trying to get to shore. Didn't know about, you know, swimming parallel to the shore and then later on trying to get in. At some point, a guy in a surfboard said, are you okay, you need any help? And I said, no. And then at some point, I don't even remember what happened subsequently, but my brothers tell me about someone having to go out there and sort of save me, and I don't know if I nearly drowned or what. But I think that is that sort of crystallizes 
my mentality for the longest time that even when I did need help, I didn't want to admit it. And even in a situation like that where I could have lost my life from from that. But that was that was kind of the way it is. And I think especially with mental health issues, whether it's ADHD, PTSD, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, the mistake is to think that you have to do it all on your own, that you have to fix it. And for whatever reason, most of us are incapable of fixing it because if we were, we would have done it already. And sometimes you just have to be okay with saying, I could do with some help, whether it's through a, a, a professional, whether it's through a friend, whatever it is, knowing that there's no, there's no shame in asking for help. Because what, one of the wonderful things about asking for help and putting it out there is that you discover that there are a whole lot of people that feel exactly the same way that you do and that you're not alone. And sometimes, even if the struggle continues, you're not isolated. And sometimes that can be the greatest comfort that you can have is like, God, there's someone else who understands where I don't have to explain it, where I don't have to be defensive, where I don't have to justify myself. There's a lot of power in that. And so that's why on occasion I've, I've made it important for me to interview photographers who've addressed issues of mental health because I know how difficult it can be not only to suffer it yourself, but also to have people in your life, your loved ones, your friends, coworkers who are suffering from that and not know what to do. So I, I, I wanted to share it just because I felt like I wanted to take the stigma off of me having it, right? And just saying, well, because I thought about it for months before I, I broached the idea of talking it with you. But I also know that, you know, there may be other people out there who are listening who are struggling with some, some issue and that they're, they're alone. And just to say, you don't have to be. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. I think it's incredible of you and really supportive for all of the other people who are suffering. Um, in the show notes, uh, we'll include a couple of websites to some free services that are available for people in the United States that can call. There are toll-free numbers that you can call. There are different support groups that are out there for you if you're struggling or for other people. And there are lots of ways to get help, thankfully. And there are a lot of people out there. And Avari Next, I just really appreciate you being so honest and upfront about it. Thanks. Thanks for asking uh, to do this. I'm I have thoroughly enjoyed the time that we have been able to talk and get to know the voice behind the candid frame a little bit more in depth. This has been a really special experience. Um, I have one last question before we get to the last question. Okay. What's next for you and the next big inspirational jump that you would like to take? Is there anything that, you know, you, you've, you've conquered book writing, you've conquered podcasting, you've conquered photography, you've conquered being an editor and a writer. Is there anything new that you'd like to learn or that would inspire you? The only thing I ideally I would want right now is I'd like for the show to be the only thing that I do, right? That I 
get to interview people, that I get to travel around interviewing people, and that I also get to teach. But the reason I want to do that is not because I want to get rich or I want to get famous. I just want to be able to travel all over the country, travel all over the world, and that sit around a table eating, drinking, and talking to people, whether they're the people that I've interviewed or people who are fans of the show or in my workshop. I want to sit in a cafe in, in Berlin, you know, not talking just about photography, but just about life. I want to be in Moscow. I want to be in Saigon. I want to be in Sao Paulo. I want to meet all these people who listen to the show and work with them. And just, I just want to have, I want to have those experiences, you know, for me, that's, that's the goal, right? Having, because what I'm doing now is not something that anyone would have given me. No one would have given me this gig, right? And so it's just like, I'm, I'm making this happen and that's, that's what I want. That's the ultimate goal, that I want to have all these experiences with people. And just along the way, make some good pictures. I can't ask, I can't ask for anything more, but that's, that, if, that, if, that, if that is the rest of my life, I would be incredibly happy. Well, for all of you listeners out there, I highly encourage you to donate to The Candid Frame to keep listening and to keep supporting Abarionex in this goal because I, for one, can speak for, I think, a huge majority of your listeners that this is a highlight whenever I get my push notifications mm. that tell me that the candid frame has a new, a new conversation that I get to eavesdrop on. So the last question that we ask every guest on this show, <laughs> what photographer is inspiring you right now? whether it be a new photographer or a work that you're revisiting right now. I'm really looking forward to Lindsay Dario. She's got a new book out, uh, which is a collection of her photographs, which is a follow-up to her biography that she released last year. And I know little bits about her, you know, but I've never really dived in deep. And I'm going to be downloading her biography from last year and going to listen to it in preparations for hopefully interviewing her in the coming year. Uh, I've interviewed a good number of conflict photographers, and from what I've learned of, about her, I think that her, her journey and her dedication to it is just exemplary. Uh, what she's trying to do with her work and just the stuff that she's come through is really amazing. Because she, along with four other uh, journalists, were were captured, I think, in Libya and almost, you know, were at risk of dying. And, and she's still out there, as so many other conflict photographers are still out there telling their stories and making their photographs. But I've, I'm, I'm always incredibly impressed by people who are so dedicated to not just being photographers, but doing something uh, purposeful with the gift that they've been provided. So... For me, she's she's that sort of on the t- you know in the forefront of my my thinking right now. So I would I would recommend Lindsay Adario. Excellent, thank you, Barry Nexborough. Thank you, thank you for asking me. Thanks to Jamie for taking over interview duties. If you want to find out more about the Momenta Photographic Workshops, visit their website at momentaworkshops.com. 
Com. And there are still some seats available for the next workshop being held in Los Angeles in February. It was an amazing experience for me last year when I participated, and I really encourage you to sign up if you want to discover new ways of using your photography to benefit others. Also, I'll be in Washington, D.C. in May for the Focus on the Story Photographic Conference. This international photo festival will feature some of the world's best photojournalists and documentary photographers, as well as talks, photo walks, and workshops, of which I am teaching one. If you want to sign up for my workshop or just want to find out more about this event, visit FocusOnTheStory.org. And some of you may or may not know that I have a YouTube channel where I discuss different aspects of photography from lighting, composition, and a whole lot more. I do this with the help of images that listeners submit to the Candid Frame Flickr Pool. You can check out the TCF Flickr Pool and our YouTube channel by clicking on the links in the show notes and the website. My new book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. In it, I translate how to see and use light and shadow, line and shape, color and gesture to make a great photograph. It's more than how to make a good picture, but how you can develop a personal and intimate way of seeing and documenting the world around you. You can order the book today. When you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code Pirello40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frames, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store as it helps our ranking and creates greater awareness of the show. Thanks to JJH in Asia and Chris Hollington for their five-star reviews. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Tyron Wilda for his recent and generous contribution. I so appreciate it. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download the free Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbadianX. And this is IbadianX, and this is The Candid Frame.